0: Hello, welcome! Wow, what a crowd tonight! This is terrific. Welcome to the finale of our of this year's uh, Journalist in Residence lecture series, and what a great way to end our amazing year with the incredible John Krakauer series has been going on all year, amazing speakers, people like um, Daniel James Brown, the author of "The Boys in the Boat," and lots of other preeminent nonfiction writers. but I'm very, very excited to introduce both John and my friend Mark Bryant, who will be conducting the conversation on stage with John. Mark is an old friend. he is a neighbor of mine in Santa Fe. He's also my former boss for years and years at Outside Magazine, and we're still on speaking terms. Pretty amazing. He's also someone who has edited many of John's work, both his magazine pieces and some of his books. So a few words about Mark. Mark was an editor-in-chief and co-founder of Byliner, where he published the work of, among others, Nick Hornby, Margaret Atwood, Ann Patchett, Amy Tan, William Vollman, and a host of other amazing writers. He was a former editor of Men's Journal and former executive editor at HarperCollins. And he's consulted for such companies as Condé Nast, Time Inc., and The New York Times. But it's in his capacity as the long-term editor-in-chief of Outside Magazine during the 1990s that I got to know Mark as my boss and during a very interesting time in the history of that magazine. He is a fine and fastidious editor. He ran a tight ship and it's no accident that when he was there during his tenure the magazine won five national magazine awards, an unprecedented amount of hardware that he brought home for the magazine. Mark lives in Santa Fe with his wife and daughter. He's a graduate of Bowdoin College and he is going to be our inquisitor on stage tonight. It's easy For an editor like Mark to win a bunch of national magazine awards when you have people like John Krakauer working for you. John Krakauer needs really, in some senses, no introduction from me. He is the author of some amazing books, Eiger Dreams, Into the Wild, Under the Banner of Heaven, Where Men Win Glory, Three Cups of Deceit, and most recently, his book, Missoula, about the very controversial and very, very current topic of rape on college campuses. John was raised in Oregon. He studied at Hampshire College. He lives in Boulder with his wife, Linda Moore, who is here in the audience, who also, by the way, attended Colorado College. Uh, (laughs) John, of course, is a journalist. He's a climber. He's a wildly successful author. Of some of our nation's most memorable, toughest uh, nonfiction books, because he, t- he takes a really hard look at tough subjects. He is a brave writer who takes on these subjects and pursues the truth with a ferocity and a deep passion. He is one, truly, one of our master craftsmen of narrative nonfiction, and he has been gracious enough to come speak with us tonight, but also to be with us tomorrow morning with some of our classes. I'm teaching a a class now called Writing uh, Wild, the Literary Journalism of the Outdoors. Uh, So this fits in perfectly with what we're doing. So we're going to have a conversation on stage between Mark and John, and afterwards, hopefully if there's some time, we might be able to entertain just a few questions, and then John is going to graciously sign some books. Over here, kind of on this side of Armstrong. Without further ado, I give you Mark Bryant and John Krakauer.
1: John, I want to thank you for having us tonight. And I just want to say... What a pleasure it is to share my old friend and colleague, John, with you all tonight. I've been lucky enough to work with John for, as he reminded me about a year ago as the hardcover edition of Missoula was being released, that we have worked together for considerably more than 30 years, which made me feel both proud and, frankly, a lot older than I like to think I am. We began working together when we were virtually still kids uh, in life and certainly in this line of work, uh, and I think it's fair to say that at that point, I think we were pretty much making it up as we went along. Neither of us had studied journalism. We had a real passion for it uh, and for narrative nonfiction, but you know, we were, we were making it up as we went. Among the many things that made me immediately like John so much right from the start were things like we had a shared sensibility, a certain uh, irreverence, and I'd have to say a very low tolerance for jerks. It's been thrilling and, and enormously gratifying to me to be able to, you know, to see John continue to grow in his work, both as a writer, really I shouldn't say just his work, really as a writer and as a person. He quickly developed and has continued to refine you know, a, a really powerful and eloquent voice, and he's always put it to such good use. As Hampton said, he's always taken on such tough, important subjects. His devotion to pursuing through elegantly constructed narratives and wonderfully drawn characters the larger truths in life has been inspiring to a lot of readers and and certainly to me. And I think it's safe to say that he's, and I'm gonna make him blush here, but that he's clearly one of the most accomplished and admired nonfiction storytellers we have today. These are not easy times that we live in. They're deeply complicated. I think it's fair to say they're often confusing. And the truth can be a hard thing to get at. And John, I think as, as much as any writer I know, uh, feels an enormous responsibility to get at those truths. So those are some of the things we're gonna, we're gonna talk about tonight. Let's start along those lines with Missoula. John's new book was published last year. The paperback was out, what, last month? January, January, okay. I wanna talk about it first uh, because it, in some ways, it would seem to be very different than much of his earlier work, but at the same time, I think it shares a lot with some of that earlier work. Uh, To me, it's a tremendous book. It's a very disturbing book. It's a brave book, Uh, not just for what John's taken on, but more importantly, the women who tell their stories to John in this book are just remarkable and and brave beyond belief. I think it's a very important book. I don't know if I learned this in Missoula or elsewhere, but as I understand it, only 20% of rapes are reported. Less than 5% of those cases, correct me if I've got this off, are prosecuted. That's right. Less than 3% of the defendants are found guilty and face jail time. So what that comes down to is 95% of the people who rape get off scot-free. Is that a fair assessment?
2: That's absolutely accurate. Yeah. It's conservative. If anything, it's worse than that. Yeah.
1: Really? Wow. This is all, you know, deeply peer-reviewed research. Uh, this is not... Th- these, these facts John and others have arrived at after, after quite a bit of a bit of work. So tell us how you came to this story. What brought you to it? I know it was, it was something more personal than, than some.
2: Yeah, this, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a complicated way that I choose to write a book. I, I research, I've researched many, many more books than I chose to write. I really enjoy the research. So I've spent as long as a year more on a subject and decided not to write the book. And that always feels great because I don't have to write the thing. Uh, You think I'm joking, I'm not joking. Um, So this book, a young woman, and I I tell this story in the last few pages of the book of Missoula, but um, the genesis of this book was very different than anything uh, and much more personal. It was a young woman who I've known since she was born, Uh, my wife and I, we're very close to her. She's like a daughter to us. Uh, Mark knows her. In the book I call her Laura Summers. And she was on a fast track, you know, star basketball player. Uh, in college. She played basketball, went to NYU, got out of college and career as a journalist right out of school for ABC News and others. And she ended up getting into the documentary film business in LA and was just, you know, green lights, everything she did, she did really well. And, and she was on this fast track and we all admired her and thought she was happy and successful, worked pretty hard, but you got to do that. She ended up in rehab. I mean, in a Rehab facility, I found out in Arizona, and I was shocked. Rehab, uh, and it turns out she had been raped when she was uh, in her early teens by a fam- by a friend. Didn't tell anyone. I was raped again in her mid teens by a family friend who who I know uh, repeatedly. Didn't tell anyone, which is really common among young girls who are raped for complicated reasons that I get into in the book. You don't get over. She you know she was in denial, like many rape victims. Was I even really raped? Did I do something to deserve that? Um, so she set about leading her life, and she became a workaholic, because she didn't, wouldn't define herself as that, it was the way she dealt with the trauma, the PTSD, which she didn't even acknowledge she had. And uh, for years, she was taking Adderall to stay awake and drinking to go to sleep, and but getting ahead and functioning, and then she just crashed and ended up in rehab. And uh, so when I found out that she'd been sexually assaulted and didn't tell anyone, and then I, found out the trauma, I talked to her and went to rehab with her and found out the trauma she'd endured. And it was, as I just say in the book, it was like, rape is like really different than other kinds of trauma. It's so personal and so intimate to be penetrated by someone else, someone you trust, especially. It destroys your trust in the world. And so she was like this ghost trapped in this moment of reliving this assault over and over again. And to deal with that, she just worked and drugged herself and it didn't work. And so when I found out about this, I said, man, how could this have happened? So I started doing, just trying to educate myself and I'm pretty compulsive and um, I got deep into it in a hurry and started tracking all these different uh, rape cases that were in the news around the country. And one of them happened to be Missoula. And it was just random that I like Montana. I live fairly close. So I went up there to see a sentencing hearing. And it, for those of you who read the book, that was the sentence, sentence hearing for Alison Hugot's assailant, the central character of the book and that I'd been thinking about is there a book here or not. But when I went to that hearing and I saw what she faced, this was this was a sentencing hearing for a man who had been repeatedly taped, confessing to the crime. There was no doubt he did it. And she had to fight tooth and nail to get the county, Missoula County, to do more than give him a slap on the wrist because he was a football star. Uh, in the high school and the the local college. So that's when I decided to write the book, when I saw her on the stand, standing up to this defense attorney and all these football players in the audience. And I saw the courage it took to do that. And I was so blown away, I thought I could build a book around this young woman. I had no idea then that Missoula had this long and complicated history. So that's how the book came to be.
1: And it's fair to say certain people in Missoula, including friends of mine and maybe friends of yours, were sort of shocked by the title uh, and yet, it is a very representative. Right. The, Missoula stands in for any number of American towns. Right. In it fact, turns out, yeah. The incidence I, of rape was lower there. Is that right? The,
2: the, in, the incidence of rape in Missoula is actually slightly lo- lower than national average. The, you know, they. It, it's it's an average. It's not an outlier. It's a perfect place to write this book because it's every town USA. It's uh, seventy six thousand people. What happens in Missoula happens everywhere, and I found out that to be true more than ever after the book came out. So. Yeah, Missoula. And the title, I, I was naive. I was kind of an idiot. I thought everyone, no one would mind. Um, uh, to me, it was, it was this almost this academic title. It was a case study. Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. And Missoulians did not see it that way. And believe me, I've heard from a lot of them. So.
1: <laughs> You've talked about how you got into the subject in the book. I know you spent, how long did you work on the
2: book? It was actually a really quick book for me. I spent maybe three years. It's hard to remember. Uh, three years, maybe a little more. I wrote it really fast. It was really hard. It's the hardest book I've had to write. It really, It's a really tough subject. Those of you who haven't read it, it's, it's not an easy read. Uh, I'm really glad I write it. I've never been prouder of a book I've written. This maybe is the most important book I've written, I believe. People don't want to believe this subject. I mean, as Mark said, 80% of rapes go unreported. There was, a, there was an article in The New Yorker last week about a rape scandal in Mexico in the state of Veracruz and how, how you know, there's all this corruption in Mexico and we think of course rape happens there. And the article quoted a, a very peer-reviewed study, a Mexican study that was you know, showing how terrible Mexico is. That in Mexico, 79% of the rapes go unreported. And I said, wait a minute, in, a- in America it's 80%. You know? And they were saying how only 5% of the crimes are prosecuted. Well, in America it's 4%. I mean, so the w- United States is this is, a, this is a huge and, and shameful problem that is so hard to get people to take seriously. Um, it is so hard to get justice in the criminal justice system, in colleges. They do a better job. There's no uniform way of adjudicating rape cases. It's a mess, and no one is taking the bull by the horns and say we've got this big problem, and, and we don't know how to fix it.
1: I was struck by how, how brave these women were who spoke to you. Did you expect people to want to talk to you? No. No. At all, and so directly, so personally, uh, and to want their names used.
2: You know, I gotta tell this little story that when I went to that sentencing hearing in Missoula and I coincidentally, this packed courtroom, three quarters of it was supporters of the rapist, football players, his family and friends. And I happened to sit a couple seats away from the victim right next to her best friend who also testified. And so when I saw, I looked over at her and at the break I went up to her and by then I realized I could write a book about this. So I asked this friend who's in the book herself, her name's Keeley Williams. I said, you don't know me, uh, but I'm a writer and I'm, I think I'm, I want to talk to Allison about writing a book. And she was all defensive, this creepy old guy asking about her. You know. And so I said, all right, all right, all right, can I just leave you my contact information? So I wrote a note and she saw my name and said, I know you, we had to read your stupid book in middle school. <laughs> It was into the wild, and but that gave me entries. Yeah, I'll show it to her, and then so she came up to me at the lunch break. Allison did, and and I told her I'm not sure I want to write this book, and you're damn sure you don't know you don't you're not at all sure you want to do this. So, but I want to contact you and we'll talk. And once we started talking, she wanted to do it right away, and I said no. I want to, I'm going to spend the next month trying to talk you out of it because you have no idea the kind of shit you're going to take. And so we did that, and she was adamant. I want to do this. Uh, and from the get-go, she wanted to use her real name. I said, well, we'll talk later when you've seen the book. And then I didn't, at that point, I didn't know I'd be, I thought the book would be only about Alice, and I found out there's this whole series of rapes because they had a really messed up prosecutor's office and police department. And so each of these women agreed to talk to me. Um, I, I told them all, you will have the right to, and this is, this is not, I didn't go to journalism school, and I have a lot of problems with the way journalism is taught. And one of the things, the way journalism is fact-checked, um, you're not supposed to show quotes to the subject um, and this, you know, I did that for many years. But with books, it's so hard to get to the truth. It's hard to get stuff right. What I do is I, if I write about people, I let them see the chapters that are even mentioned and fact check. I don't, as I told Allison, I told all these women, you'll have a chance to see the chapters you're mentioned in you'll have the chance to, I won't, well, you can't tell me what to write. you know. And if I find out you lied to me, that's gonna be in the book. you know. But what you will be able to do is if you don't like how you're presented in the book, you can't change what I write, but I will just pull you out of the book completely. It'll be like we never talked. And that convinced women to trust me. And then I ended up showing each of the women I spoke to the entire book. I said, you know, they've got to see the context. And to my great surprise, when I sent them the book to say, well, I gave you this stupid pseudonym, but you can change it to something else. And they all were like, I want to use my real name. Every one of them, I couldn't believe it. I said, no, you don't. And they were all like, yes, I do. I, you know, I have nothing to be ashamed about. That fucker who raped me is the guy who should be ashamed. And I want my story told. That was Allison's whole reason. You know, when she, she wanted to go to court. Yeah, right. The heroes of my book are the women who talk to me. They are courageous. They have taken so much shit and will continue to take it. And they said, no, I want my story told. And in Allison's case, she realized that if, you know, she had been quiet, she didn't come forward that she'd been raped, didn't report it to her her dad, let alone the police for 15 months. And she read in the paper, the local paper, that there had been another uh, gang rape in Missoula and said, oh my God, if I had come forward, maybe it's the same guy. Maybe it's Bo. Maybe this wouldn't happen. So for all these women, it was like, you know, if I don't come forward, other, some point in Missoula, one of the main things I learned from the science is that there's a handful of men. Not every man is a rapist. Most men are not rapists. The vast majority of men are not rapists. A handful of men do most of the raping. Um, Maybe 15% of the men in any community commit most of the rapes. And each of these serial rapists Uh, rapes on average six women and has another eight or nine victims of other violent crimes, Uh, you know, physical assault, child abuse. So this emphasizes how important it is to change the way we address rape because by letting these guys, oh, you think it's it's a nice guy, he was just a frat boy. You know, it was, he said, she said, you let that guy off, that guy's probably raped many other women and will keep doing it because these rapists learn how easy, they they rape because people said, well, you didn't really write in your book why these guys rape. And as, as I say, is they rape because it's so easy to get away with it. Um, it just is. Our criminal justice system is designed to protect the rights of the accused. And I applaud that. I believe in the Fourth Amendment. I believe in Fifth Amendment. I believe in you know, all this protection and due rights. But we need to acknowledge that most of the rapists who are charged are in fact guilty. There's, there's definitely false accusations. I'm trying to find the truth. I am as eager to prove the innocence of those fa- falsely accused as to prove the guilt of those who are guilty. The problem is the ratio of the, in- of the falsely accused to those who get away with it is like 100 to 1, literally. Probably more than that. So there's a small problem, but a serious one of falsely accused, between 2 and 8% of rape Accusations are false, the science tells us. We, but on the other hand, you know, only a fraction, you know, one or two or 3% of the guys who are guilty of rape ever are held accountable in any way. So it's a much bigger problem. That's why I focus on that in the book. It seems like this book
1: came along at, at, at a critical time in many ways, uh, not the least of which specific to at least that moment was the Rolling Stone fiasco. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I
2: had told my editor, Bill Thomas, who's also Hampton Sides' editor, uh, anyway, I told him I would turn this book in when I got the book contract. You know, I was already, usually you get a book contract before you've started work, because you need the advance. I I was well into this book before I told Bill what I wanted to write about. And I didn't even submit a proposal. I was in New York, and I said, Bill, I got this new book. Here it is, and he was like, I get it. I got a daughter. It. You know, that was it. That was the book contract. And I told him, okay, I'm going to turn it in on January of 2015. Um, he said, great. Well, then it got, the book expanded from just Alice to all these other women. So in August, it says, man, I'm not going to make it. I need some more time. Uh, and, and so the book, it was never really postponed. It was always going to be published in the spring of 2015. But when I, oh, I know, originally it was going to turn in in August. And then I said, no, I'm going to turn in in January. In the interim, the Rolling Stone fiasco happened where a sloppy reporting, sloppy editing, Rolling Stone got it wrong. Um, they had to retract that stuff. It was a huge, huge damage to victims of rape everywhere. It was all this ammunition for the men's rights movement. These guys say, see, women lie. Most women lie. This proves it. So more than ever, uh, I was determined to get this book out quickly and make sure it was absolutely. You know, accurate. I fact-check, I was fact-checking at the time the Rolling Stone thing happened. I've never fact-checked a book more carefully than ever. Um, so I wanted this book out there as sort of a counter story to the, the Rolling Stones fiasco.
1: I know it's probably still too early in some respects, but do you feel like it's, the book is making a certain difference?
2: I think what's made a difference is my book situation. coincided with simultaneously, before my book, before I even heard of it, women were starting to come forward. And when a woman, when a victim, a survivor comes forward and tells her story, it can sometimes be therapeutic to her. Not always, it can cause her more trouble because she's always attacked and vilified and gets death threats. Women realize that sometimes it helps them and it helps emboldens other women to come forward. So there's been this tipping point, I hope, that has nothing to do with my book, it predates my book, but not by a lot, where there's now this critical mass building of victims who are not gonna be ashamed anymore uh, and or telling the truth and trying to convince others that they really are should be believe. So my book has contributed to that. I mean, I'm pretty skeptical and cynical about the, value, the ability of my books. You know, Mark's taking some heat, just even locally at uh, uh, the radio interview I heard today where the guy said, gee, you know, you sent this, this guy off he almost died. How do you, don't you feel bad about that? But Mark came up with the idea and said, why don't you go to Everest? This is in 95. But he, they only told me that like a, a couple of weeks before I would have had to go. And I said, Well, I'd love to go. But he said, No, I just reported from base camp. And, and I said, No, but if I go all that way, I want to try to climb the mountain. So that was my the bad's on me for that. And that was a mistake. But, so I convinced him, Mark, if you give me another year, give me until 96, and I can train and get fit.
1: You said I'm in rock climbing shape, but I'm not in mountaineering shape.
2: Right, right.
1: And uh, it's a different thing. Yeah. And you wanted to have that time. That's right.
2: right. And truth be told, I mean, I, since I was a kid, I wanted to climb Everest and I never, I didn't have the money. I was a starving writer outside magazine paid shit, you know? And, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and they, you know, they, they, it would be expenses. It was $65,000. So it was my chance. I went there, I cared about the story, but I mostly just wanted to climb Everest. We all knew that this is, can't be a good idea, having these rank amateurs being dragged up Everest for $65,000. So, you know, I went, and then when the disaster happened and the shit hit the fan, and I, I was a mess, and I wrote that story. It was cathartic, it's angry. People said, You should have waited two years. And I, I, it's a much more honest piece because I didn't. The anger is there. I wouldn't have written it that angry. Uh, it, it was, you know, I think we fact checked the hell out of it. It's, it stood up. We all assumed, okay, people are going to read this. And no one, they, we've killed the guiding business on Everest. We thought that. You predicted that, I think,
1: even as you were writing it. Yeah. In fact, this is only going to call more attention to Mount Everest, and more of these clowns are going to want to pay $65,000 with the thought that they can summit Mount Everest.
2: And that's what happened. So, yeah. you know, this will show what a bad idea this is, and people will be educated. And, and, and the opposite, they, people, when I, the, I booked her for Interthan Air, Earth, people would come up to me and stare at me, You climbed Everest? You're not very big, you know. <laughs> and they'd they go, If he can climb Everest, I could climb Everest. <laughs> and they're probably right. And right. so, you know, one of, the gu- one of the main guides, who's a friend of mine from Seattle, just was furious with me for writing the article and writing the book and said, you fucker, you know, you've ruined my business. And then, this, isn't, this is no bullshit, this is true. Two years later, he came out to me, shook my hand, you are the best thing that ever happened to my business. <laughs> that is a true story. And, he, and it's a true fact. I mean, Everest, you know, has exploded and now we see. So anyway, as far as writing books that I, you know, can take pride in how they bettered the world, I, I don't, I'm... I haven't seen a lot of that, so.
1: I mean, we knew that would happen with Everest. In really every one of John's books, the setting is a character in and of itself. And we've always felt, John and I talking about this over the years, that that, uh, character is revealed under extreme circumstances. You see the best of people, you see the worst of people. Heroes, villains, bad behavior, good behavior, self-sacrifice, greed. You know, it all comes into play, often in ways we might not predict down at, you know, what would stand in for sea level. So in a situation like Everest, we learned, it, to me it was, we sent John, outside sent John to warn against the very thing that we, that, that he himself was in the middle of. And, and, and many people lost their lives. And yet I think the sort of morality play that the book ultimately became the magazine piece. At the time, the magazine piece was 17,000 words. John was writing about 1,000 words a day and sending it in. When, he, when we spoke from Kathmandu, when John got, he'd just come into town, it was a, obviously a very emotional conversation. But even then, he was saying, People are going to write about this who think they know. They're going to write it from their desks in New York. Uh, they're going to jump on this, try to cut our grass. I was there. I think I know what happened. I want to tell that story. We continued that conversation when he was in Seattle. I remember saying, you know, John, the whole world knows you were there now, and you can, you know, you should wait. You should take your time. Uh, not because I thought it was a more, it would be a more measured, careful story, but because I was just worried about my friend and his frame of mind and what he'd been through. You know, when once you sat down, I said, when once you agree that it's going to come out, you want to do it soon. Watch out, because the publicity engine is going to start. You won't be able to back out, you know, it's, and I won't be able to really slow it down without it, you know, getting a little problematic. So you wrote it in a flash, and then you wrote the book in how many months after that?
2: So I, I think I turned in the, the, article came out in September, is that right? Right. Of 96. And I think I probably had to turn it in like at the end of August or something like that. And then I'd already had a commitment to go to Antarctica in January, in December. I had to fly to South Africa to go to Antarctica for National Geographic. And when, after the article came out, I realized, I wrote it fast, I got some really key things wrong. They were my fault, even though we fact checked and they were wrong. The, the main thing was one of my closest friends on the mountain was Andy Harris, a New Zealand guide, a young guide, you know, we had a lot in common. We'd, he hadn't climbed Everest, but he was, we like to do the same kind of technical climbing. He was a real climber, and, and he died. He, he was, you know, we got down from the summit. We, we didn't even realize a storm was coming in, but Rob Hall was in trouble then, Doug, Doug Hansen, We were coming down, Andy and I, at the south summit. 300 feet above, Rob was on the summit with Andy, and he collapsed, and as I was starting to head down, um, before we even knew there was a storm, Rob radioed Andy and said, Doug's in trouble, he's collapsed. I need you to bring oxygen and come back up. There's oxygen on the south summit. And Andy then said, you know, they said, send crack ever down, Um, you need to come back up. And Andy went back up with oxygen. And because of that heroic act, he died with Rob, uh, you know, just below the summit. So I went down ahead of most of the people on Everest and I down climbed into the storm. The storm was rising from the valley. Above, it was blue sky. Everyone was partying, you know, I knew I was at, you know, I ran out of oxygen. Someone stole my, the third of my three oxygen bottles. I had to get down. And I was an experienced climber and knew you didn't party on the summit of fucking Everest. You got down. <laughs> but most people didn't know that because there was blue sky, the clouds were below us. But when I got down, I, soon, I collapsed my tent. I was more exhausted than I have ever had ever been. The storm by that point was, you know, you had to crawl to get to base camps. hundred mile an hour winds, all the skin was sandblasted off my face. Um, in the morning, I woke up and people said, people didn't come back, Andy didn't come back, Rob, Doug. And I freaked out. And uh, I went out looking for Andy, especially. And I saw a cramp on tracks that looked like they came down from the route and took a right instead of a left at camp, which it would have been easy to do in the storm, and went over the edge of the Lhotse face. And in my panic, uh, I assumed that was Andy and it reported as such. When he, he disappeared, no one knew where he was. Rob was up on the top, still live, radioing down, and he said, where's Andy? You know, and his nickname was Harold. I don't know, Harold's gone, Doug's gone. And, and then we tried to talk Rob into coming down, but he was so, such a mess that he wouldn't, and he was so grief-stricken. So I assumed Andy had walked after Lizzie Face and I reported that. And later, after the article came out, I learned that Andy was died with Rob on the summit. So one of my reasons to, to write the book and write it fast was to correct that mistake. Um, so I had to go to Antarctica on December 1st. I decided to write the book October 1st had October, oh no, September, September, October, November. I, had three, I wrote that book in three months. It's like 100,000 words or something. And that's the fastest I've ever written in my life. I mean, I'm a slow writer. For better or worse, that's, that's the way that book was written. It wasn't time to overwrite it or overthink it. Um, that was from my gut. That was bile. You know, that, I, I was, I didn't know how badly damaged I was by that or how angry I was, but for years after I was just angry all the time. I don't think that writing that book was necessarily cathartic, I thought it would be. I don't think it was. I don't think one gets a sense of closure from that or maybe anything else.
1: It did send a powerful message to a lot of people. Not simply people thinking that they could potentially buy their way up Everest. It's not to put down people who sign on to commercial trips. You know, there are plenty of people who are qualified. but. My feeling, I remember mentioning this to Alex Lowe, who was at the time maybe the good friend of yours, and he was, you know, arguably the world's best alpinist. I was mentioning to him, oh, I would never go on a trip like that because it would be hard enough in a situation like that to take care of myself, let alone other people, and I would feel responsible for them. And he said, Well, that's why I would take you. And I'm going to such and such, and we should talk. And I remember thinking, he can't be serious, but wow, maybe, you know. I mean, I, was, I had that little moment of, it was not Everest, but it, nevertheless, it, yeah. was, it was a peak in the region.
2: Alex told me this story right, right before he died. I went to Antarctica with Alex in 97, um, spent a couple months with him on the ice. And uh, one of the things he told me was, he guided Everest at least three times, I think. And he said, when you guide Everest, it's so different. He guided in the Tetons. He worked for Exa Mountaineering, he guided a lot. He loved it. He loved introducing people to the mountains. And he said when you get a client, you know, some guy, he sells insurance in Wisconsin, and you get him to the top of the Grand Teton, it's such a cool thing, that's a beautiful mountain. It's a worthy summit. And he's up there, and he's thanking you, and he's so proud, and he wants a selfie with you. Well, there weren't selfies back then, but. Mm-hmm. Um, he said when you guide Everest, the, guide, the client doesn't want anyone to know he was guided. You don't get any thanks, it's just sorta of, you get tipped but you don't, it's sort of like they're embarrassed they had to be guided, it's a whole different, and this isn't entirely true, but for him it was, that guiding Everest to him was weird and creepy, and he did it, the money is so good. A lot of guides I know, you know, you get paid a pittance to guide uh, the Grand Teton, you guide Everest and you can spend two months in Nepal and come back with $50,000, you know, and that's, a, that's luring to dirtbag climbers, so um, anyway.
1: That's right, yeah. And, and for those of you under a certain age who wonder why did John have to write the book in order to correct uh, you know, his, his original take on, on Andy Harris, it was. I think we actually did run something in maybe the next issue right. of the magazine. Right. But uh, there was no internet per se. There was certainly no outside online at the time. It, was, it wasn't like we could get it up that afternoon and, and straighten it out, which is uh, you know, one of the many wonderful things that is available to, to journalists now because people don't always get something right even minute corrections that are worth making, just to clarify things. Back then, yeah, you had to, you had to wait, you know, months. And there was a, even more lead time for the print magazines as well. Longer between the time you sent it off to the printer and it came back and was in your mailbox or on the newsstand. Wrote it in three months, you were still a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, was that right? Uh, and the magazine piece won the National Book Award, or National Magazine Award for reporting the year before. I would argue it did have a real effect. It did make probably many people think twice. but It certainly, you know, popularized the, the allure of, you know, Deadly Mount Everest. How cool. And a lot of your other books, I mean, there's a, there's a common thread. When I mentioned that Missoula had shared much with your other work that was not maybe obvious, I would say that was this you know, relentless, dog on a bone pursuit of the truth. But the other books, I think, you're dealing more with obsessed people who are just going to take it too far, and the ramifications of that. You know, obsessed people in extreme situations. You know, I think about Chris McCandless in Into the Wild, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is not to say that you don't have great respect, great regard, even affection for some of these characters. Oh, but,
2: without you know, without a I mean, doubt, yeah. without.
1: Pat Tillman in Where Men mm-hmm. Will Win Glory, mm-hmm. any number of participants in. Um, into thin air, the Lafferty brothers and other members of what we might refer to as the American Taliban, in uh, under the banner of heaven. Greg Mortenson and Three Cups of Deceit. What do you what do you think they they tell us about ourselves?
2: I think that's the key is what they tell us about ourselves. Right. And people ask me how I choose my subjects, and I don't. I'm kind of an idiot savant or just an idiot in that I just I write about what I'm curious about. I'm a very curious person, and I get obsessive. I admit it. I'm very obsessive, and so. I can't get a story out of my head, and I don't know why at that point. I don't think Chris McCandless is interesting for these reasons. It's like, why did this kid do that? Why did he do that? And in, in the McCandless case, I realized years later that my fascination with McCandless was by writing about him, I hope to learn about myself, things about myself, unconsciously. I, didn't, I wouldn't have known that then. But... Um, that yourself. No, no, but I too, and, and that's why in the wild there's these two chapters in the latter half of the book where I insert my own experience trying to climb this mountain in Alaska and you're not supposed to do stuff like that and I hear a lot of these poor middle schools who have to read my stupid book who send me emails and said, not only do we have to read your stupid book but you you insert those chapters about yourself. This is a book about Chris McCandless. You had no right to write those chapters and I get that but though I put those in there because I had hoped that those chapters by showing that I was like him in certain ways, and I was obsessed, and just as reckless, and just as you know, had just as much hubris. And I I was I survived my trip to Alaska, the solo climb the devil summit, which wasn't as dangerous as what he did. I was just lucky, just pure dumb luck. And I hope to show that I wasn't suicidal, I wasn't crazy. Um, I think you probably believe that. So cut this kid some slack. And Alaskans weren't inclined and still aren't inclined to cut the kids some slack. But um, you know, I did it to sort of try to explain McCandless to the world, but it really helped me understand myself, my own relationship with my father and strange family. Into the Wild, as those of you who know have read it, there's a huge controversy. What killed McCandless? Why did he, go, why did he abandon his family and do this? And uh, when I interviewed his sister, Corrine, for the book, I was only gonna go for a couple hours and I had a plane ticket home from Virginia. And she was very distrustful. She, I had to talk her into talking. talk. But after we talked for a couple hours, she, got, she thought I might understand him. And she said, you need to cancel your flight, stay night. I have something I wanna show you. And she brought out all these letters that Chris had written her as a child before he disappeared. She hadn't showed these to anyone, not her husband, no one, until she showed them to me. But she said, I'm gonna show you these and you cannot write about what you, what's in them. And I started reading, and said, "Oh my God, this explains him." Uh, it talked about the abuse in their family, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, just the horrible dynamic, which explains a lot. I promised Corrine I would not write that without her permission, so that remained a secret until she wrote her book, which was published about a year ago, I think. And I had to sit on that secret for all those years and I wrote the forward to her book and I was so relieved she wrote it because that explains she allowed me to hint at what in Into the Wild I hinted family problems if you read between the lines Chris is explained but um, you know so her book explains a lot about McCallus that otherwise is not known I didn't go to journalism school. Um, I learned by writing under really brilliant editors like Mark. And I'm not just blowing smoke up his ass. He is, I've learned a lot from him. When you really go into depth on a story, you, I don't go into it thinking I've got an agenda. I want to find out the truth always. But once you find out the truth or what you believe to be the truth, you have duty to report what's true. We have this climate change problem where we're 20 years behind the curve is because reporters felt obligated, you know, 99% of the scientists, 97%, report climate change is real. But there's the 3% of whack jobs who are saying, no, it's not. And the New York Times and everywhere else, it's like, well, these, this guy says it's not real. It, it was, so he said, she said. It didn't, it gave a false impression of the gravity of the problem. That's a serious problem with journalism today. There's some really good reporting by the Times and the AP, really good reporters, but they also, they're really reluctant to sort of state something they know absolutely to be true. I don't have that reluctance in a book. <laughs> when I report a book, I don't want, you know, the guy who's wrong to come out and say, well, here's what Krakower didn't report. So I will give him the strongest possible argument. I will give him every opportunity to, to tell his side of the story. But when, where he's wrong, I will point out where he's wrong or she's wrong. And I think you've got to you know, let everyone have their say. You can't, you don't want to shade the truth and put your finger on the scale. But when someone is evil, you know, in Missoula, the villain of that book is a the the Missoula County prosecutor, Kirsten Pabst, who's a complicated and fascinating figure who herself, she was physically abused by an ex-husband. She blew it with these rape cases, and I reported it. in In newspaper reporters, there's this, you always want to let the the person who's you're criticizing have their say so you at the last minute you call them up for comment and they usually say no comment and you say or they wouldn't return your call and you say well you know the secretary of defense wouldn't talk to me Well, in my book you don't in a book it's more problematic because you know even nowadays like the time I turned in the manuscript in January 1st 2015 to publication was four months and in those four months uh, a lot of damage could be done so I waited to interview The villains in my story to the last two weeks before it went to the printer. Uh, I didn't think they would talk to me anyway and sure enough when I emailed Kirsten Pabst she immediately emailed back I cannot talk to you give me the name of your lawyer called him and threatened to sue the shit out of me for libel. Um, The and and that happened with other people in that book too. Um, So you know you've got to I guess I'm saying, writing books is different than than day to day journalism, and I think a lot of day to day, you know, beat reporters don't realize it. They have a much tougher job. They they have to, you know, they can't, don't have the luxury of fact checking as much as they want. They don't have the luxury of tape recording and then transcribing the interviews. You know, if someone won't let me transcribe, it won't let me record. That's a big problem because I don't think you can get an interview right if you don't record it. You can get the gist of it right. But you can't get the turns of phrase it all ends up sounding like your voice usually so that's another sort of thing I taught myself I actually did an pr- uh, experiment where I was on, on a magazine assignment and I tape recorded it but I but I also took notes as if I hadn't tape recorded it and and you know to see how accurate my notes were and they were pathetically you know wrong um, and I'm a pretty fast note Wrong in terms of missing detail or nuance? Uh, both. Or? Mostly nuance completely, both. but even yeah. you miss stuff. You, not only do you get stuff wrong, you just, and I don't, I transcribe all my own interviews. It's the most boring, time consuming job is horrible. But when I do it, I mean, it takes hours, it takes, if, a, if an interview is an hour, it's going to take three or four hours to transcribe it. Um, but I do it because when I'm sitting there listening and transcribing, I hear stuff. That I didn't hear when I was asking the question. I was so bent on asking this question, repeating it, and interrupting the subject, that I didn't hear what she was trying to tell me, you know, only when the recording said, well, excuse me, this is what, you know, then I hear it, oh my god, and I would have missed that, and the transcriber would have missed that.
1: You know, there, there are plenty of, plenty of authors who strike up friendships uh, over time, especially when you're spending so much time with an author on a, I mean, with, with subjects in a book. And some of them stay in touch afterwards. But there's also the old, I don't remember if it's Janet Malcolm or maybe Renata Adler, who said, you know, writers are always selling people out.
2: My obsessive compulsive disorder, or whatever you call it. I mean, I can't, if you care about enough to write a book, which is hugely painful, I love the reporting, I genuinely hate to write, as really every sentence is, is excruciating for me. And I'm not kidding. Um, so if you're obsessive enough to write a book, and it's a huge toll, you've gotta be an obsessive person. And so you care about the subject. So when I learn a development, or justice isn't being done, or Warren Jeffs is still out there raping young girls, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do what I can to help get him in prison. When I <laughs> You know in the into the wild book the you know uh there's this big debate about what really killed chris mccandless i hypothesized that it was he ate poisonous seeds and an an eminent alaskan chemist tested those seeds and said absolutely not these you know you're wrong you got it totally wrong i would eat these seeds myself um but you know chris's final words in his journal about that were um, ex, you know, the the night after he'd eaten this huge batch of seeds, it was extremely weak, fault of potato seed, much trouble, much trouble just to stand up, um, you know, near death or something. And I said, "Man, that's pretty compelling evidence." So maybe I got it wrong. Maybe it's not these seeds. Whatever. So when that book was published, I've been teaching myself organic chemistry, reading obsessively in obscure journals, and finally,
1: a, paper. Uh, I believe in a fact, couple in years United. ago, yeah.
2: I. I found out the poison that killed him, and, and I told the chemist, and I showed him the evidence, he said, I won't believe you till you get it published in a peer-reviewed journal. You're no scientist. So <laughs> son of a bitch, that's exactly what I did. And I... <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: and I published it in a reputable journal, and we know now that uh, McAllis was almost certainly killed by um, a, actually a, a known poison, and sorry. I'm obsessive. I have people who hate me for what I've written about them. And so I understand it was Janet Malcolm who said, any writer who's not a fool or or dishonest knows that he's a con man. That was provocative intentionally. But what she's trying to say is that when you're a writer, and this is true, when you talk to people, they think you're going to tell their story in their way. And you're not. Your job is to tell it is to assess all the different stories and tell it your way. So you're gonna anger people. We're all vain. We want it to look great in the stories and you're not necessarily gonna look great. So I've angered a lot of people who, who send me, you know, death threats and hate mail and, and all kinds of stuff and troll me, but I also have maintained close relationships with some subjects. Um, and that's, you know, that's meaningful to me. You can't just walk away. When someone has risked so much, when these women in, these, in, in Missoula have risked so much to talk to me, you know, I'm not just going to ignore them and go on to the next thing.
1: There are obviously real advantages to writing, of living and writing, you know, west of the 100th meridian. What, what,
2: well, you know, you would know that? better than, you, you were, you, you, you've worked as a book editor in New York. You worked for the New York Times. You understand that world better than I do because I've never lived in New York. I, you know, I, man, I was a carpenter and a commercial fisherman. I became a writer because I, you know, I needed the money. Um, I didn't know
1: doing carpentry. Yeah, I I I started freelancing
2: for outside. I kept my tool belt until I published Tent Bound My editor Mm here and I I had some time anyway um, So I didn't expect any respect from anyone let alone New York And so for me, it seemed obvious that the West there's fewer writers per square mile Um, (laughs) You know, there's more opportunity for a freelancer like me who has no credentials None you don't you know, I'm and so I don't know, I just know that maybe the East, I didn't feel like I ever sacrificed anything by living in the West and writing about the West. I, I understand the resentment of people like Stegner, you know, who didn't get the respect, Jim Harrison and a lot of great writers who said, man, you know, if I'd been in New York, I would have gotten some attention. I was grateful to even get published. You know, my publishing has been very serendipitous and it happened in the West. So I don't see a problem with that. There's, there's great stories here. There's great stories everywhere. You know, I'm not a great writer. People, I've had a lot of success, but I'm a really... I've I I benefited from good editors, and I'm a good self-editor. My first drafts are unreadable. My tenth drafts are unreadable. I probably, I probably write every sentence in every book, you're not going to believe this, at least a hundred times. And that's the beauty of writing, is you can edit it until it's as good as you can get it. No one sees that first draft, and that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> So I don't, you know, the East Coast, West Coast thing, um, my publisher in the East Coast, I think it's a real advantage to have a New York publisher. Wherever you're from as a writer, if you're published by a small press, it's a lot harder to get attention. As you know, as you alluded to, this day and age, man, it's a, I don't, I, if I was starting now, I might never get, get any traction. I might still be a carpenter because this day and age, it's a lot harder. Mark and I worked in the golden age of magazine, writing and editing. Um,
1: it certainly seemed like it at the time, but in <laughs> retrospect, yes. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you, you anyway. know,
2: Mark, uh, he, he started this company, Byliner. Um, it, it, you should talk about that. It was sort of an experiment that, that was going great and kind of got its legs pulled out from under. But there's, that's sort of, publishing is challenging now. I don't have advice for young writers, because I wouldn't know how to survive in this climate. Byliner was a, was a really good attempt to, to make it work.
1: Writers were hungry for it. Readers were happily, pretty hungry for it. We published at the beginning just ebooks, and then the company began to eventually monetize that. The thought was, well, we'll be the next Netflix of reading.
2: The good will rise to the top, and you you will, if you're willing to put in that sacrifice, and you know, for the first 10 years or more, probably more, that I was a writer, I never earned, my wife and I, our combined income was never more than $15,000. And, but we were doing what we wanted. We were both self-employed. You know, we did, and it's a good thing to learn how to be poor and live on nothing. It serves you well through life. I would never urge anyone to be a writer. I mean, that's crazy. But if people who feel compelled to do it, I mean, you know, you're not, you're going to figure out a way to do it or not. Um, And I don't know that writing can be taught. I mean, you can you can teach people to be better writers, but you know, I'm self-taught, and I learned by trial and error a lot of error and thank god when I was learning this stuff I published I had to publish 60 pieces a year to make that 12 or 15 grand and thank god there wasn't internet back then so now all those things have vanished from the face of the earth Um, but I learned by writing crappy stuff and reading it and saying oh my god that's embarrassing next time I'll do this that's that's how I learned and so you know you can if you are self-critical and have people giving you feedback you can make as many drafts as you have the energy for and that's that's an advantage in life you don't get that opportunity in many other avenues of life
1: if you want to write write, and and don't worry about where you're going to get published yet work on the craft if you reach a certain level of mastery with that you will be found you will find an audience
0: speaking of audience and finding your audience we have one right here uh, for John and uh, I think it would be great we have a little bit of time for some questions good evening
2: John I read The Climb by Anatoly Boukreev. Yeah, uh-huh. Seemed like such a hero in, on the mountain that, you know, when that happened, did, is that your take on that? Oh, he was definitely a hero. He also made some huge mistakes. Uh, he didn't climb with oxygen. Guiding ever so right. oxygen. oxygen. Yeah, as as a guide, right, yeah. should you have oxygen. Yeah, you can't. So, and I, you know, I've taken a lot of heat for criticizing Anatoly. That, I just told the truth. I mean, I praised him for saving lives. He did that without a doubt. He risked his life to go out in the storm. But uh, by not climbing, with ox- with, by climbing without oxygen, you, can't, you can barely, most people can't even get themselves down. Right. So he was forcing, by doing that, he had to come all the way back down and then to try to go all the way back up again. That doesn't happen. He, you know, he risked his life by walking on level ground 300 yards to save those lives. Right. For him to climb up back up to 29,000 feet, it wasn't happening. Right. So I was pretty angry when I wrote that book. And I was, I was angry because the even greater heroes were people like Neil Bidelman and Clev Schoening right. in Anatoly's team because Anatoly left and went down. They Neil and Clev, who was a client, got down all the other people. They really took risks and almost died because of it. And but didn't, didn't Anatoly any... go all the way back up? What's to, that? Didn't he go all the way back up to try and save Scott? Oh no one went could go back up. I mean okay. Scott was, you know, beyond saving. Um, Uh, Some Sherpas tried to go back up and save people, but that's asking too much of anyone, even a Sherpa, after exhausting yourself for 24 hours in a raging storm. I think we all learned a lot from Everest, and Anatoly himself, when he guided Everest the next year, and used oxygen. Um, So, you know, uh, I I stand by what I wrote in that book. I've had a lot of debates with it, and I'm not the only one. Ed Deisters, David Brashears, Right. Uh, much more experienced Somalian climbers than I do, agreed that Anatoly, for all his greatness, you know, what was he thinking, being a guide, climbing Everest that didn't make sense. Thank you. Next question. First
0: yeah. of all, thank you for coming to Colorado College. Um, you talked about the relationship you had with the uh, folks in the book in Missoula and, and other things. What about those you didn't have relationships with? What
2: would you ask Pat Tillman, Joseph Smith the guy in into the wild, what, what would you ask them, uh, folks that you never had a, really a chance to, to meet? I'd want to have endless conversations with them. I'd probably have those people, I would really want to talk to Joseph Smith. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, and I say that, he was what uh, Harold Bloom called a religious genius. I mean, he was a remarkable man. He was a seminal figure in American history. You know, It was the one American religion that became a great religion. I, I admire a lot about him. I mean, I'm not religious, so, you know, I, don't have, I don't think his religion was any crazier than any other religion. Um, I think they're all crazy, so. Uh, but I understand the religious impulse and I envy it. Um, so I, I understand the religion serves a real purpose in society and does a lot of good. Um, I just, you know, I'm too skeptical. I'm this cranky skeptic, so.
1: I was wondering where,
2: where in the world were you most inspired to write and why? Landscapes are hugely important to me, as Mark mentioned my favorite lam- landscape in the world is Arctic, Alaska. My first trip to Alaska when I was 20 years old was to the Aragetch Peaks. It's now gates of the Arctic National Park. It was before it a National Park. And it's paradise and it's beautiful. It's like, it's otherworldly. Um, but, you know, writing about landscape, if you're a genius like Barry Lopez, you can do it. If you're not a genius like me, you've gotta have a story to tell. I, I'm a narrative writer. I need a story is, I build my, books around a narrative, uh, and I use that story to sort of convey the ideas I wanna make, or uh, the ideas I wanna present, or the landscapes I wanna describe. So place is important to me, but it's not, uh, you know, to r- write a book, writing a book, I need more than place. Uh, not all my books are set in, in interesting places, so.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
2: I wanted to ask, how do you, um, or could you speak about how you've honed and developed your obsessive quality I've tried to get rid of these obsessive qualities. Understood, understood. (laughs) I was born with them and it's, uh, you know, it's one of those make lemonade out of lemon kind of things, you know.
0: Because I think, so I I feel that element in regards to like wanting to get rid of it, uh, but I think that element of how do you channel it to be productive with your obsessions?
2: How do you challenge your obsessions? Or how do you channel your obsessions productively? Boy, channeling my obsessions has never really been a problem. Um, (laughs) I, I guess, because I'm curious and I'm, I mean, you know, I'm a tough customer. I don't, I'll start a book and if I'm not engaged by it, even if other people think it's a brilliant book, I give up after 20 pages. So what I, my obsessions have to engage me. Once I'm engaged, then the problem is not channeling obsession, it's like reining it in. You know, curiosity is, you gotta be curious to be a writer. You have to be interested in people, in listening. I'm a good listener. I like listening to people talk. So my skills as a writer are not actually I craft the sentences by, that, that helps be obsessive to write him, rewrite them a hundred times, but what allows me to write what I write is my curiosity and my patience and my interest in other people, I would say. Thank you.
1: Good evening. Um, earlier when you were discussing your Everest experience, you mentioned that you went through a period of extreme anger immediately after and then also for following years. And I'm curious to know how you processed through that and then also how that anger and then the resulting process that you had to go through has influenced your life and then your further writing.
2: I didn't know I was angry. I mean, my wife, forgive me, Linda, for sharing this, but you know, for, I don't know, two or three years after Everest, I would wake up in the morning and she told me, you never even smiled. You never said hello. You never said I love you. I was angry all the time, and she would say, you need counseling, and I would say, fuck, I don't need counseling, leave me alone. (laughs) I only meant it, and it wasn't until, when I wrote the Tillman book, I was embedded in Afghanistan with combat troops for five months, and when I came back, I was so impressed with how hard it is to be a soldier, a marine, that I started getting involved with local veterans groups, and after a couple years, the veteran group I was involved with in Boulder said, man, you could benefit from our group therapy every Tuesday. I'm not a veteran, well, we'll have you anyways. I don't need therapy. And they just, they kept at this for more than a year. Come to our group therapy. And finally I said, all right, I'll come three times if you promise never to mention it again. And I came, and for the next four or five years, I've been going. And I benefited immensely as my first real exposure to therapy, and I, it took me a long time. I'm dense, but I got it, and I got it by seeing These vets, from Vietnam vets, Iraq vets, Afghanistan vets, had terrible PTSD and I recognized it in them and they helped me recognize it myself and helped me. Group therapy is a strange and miraculous thing. I don't know how it works, but it works.
1: I'm a critical media studies major here at CC Um, and so I'm interested in what it was like for you having your work turned into films and if you had artistic input in that, or what that process was like?
2: I have, and it's been really interesting. It's been an experience. My first experience with film was with Into Thin Air, which was, and I didn't have any experience, so someone said, oh, just sell the rights. Movies never get made, which is largely true. Uh, So I sold the rights, and just a god-awful, wretched TV movie was made. Um, (laughs) So I learned a lot from that. So when uh, people wanted to buy the rights to Into the Wild, with Into the Wild, I started something I've done for every book that involves other people, I've turned the decision about making a film over to the subjects. So with the McCandless family, we all agreed, the parents and the sister and I each had a vote. And if NES vetoed the film, it wouldn't happen. And finally, we were convinced by Sean Penn to make a movie, and it turned out really well, I thought. So but he 10
1: years trying to convince yeah.
2: So he, he you so know, he convinced us in 1997 to allow him to make that film after interviewing many other filmmakers. And then, the night he was gonna fly out to Maryland to talk to Mrs. McCandless to sign the papers, she had this dream that it was all a mistake. And she called him up before he got on the plane and said, Sean, I can't do this, it's over. And he just respected her and said, okay, I get it. But he kept calling her for the next 11, 12 years. <laughs> and he kept, and, and I got a call out of the blue, like, I, you know, literally 10 years later, I guess. And uh, from Walt McCandless saying, John, you think Sean Penn is still interested in that film? we were ready to make it. And I went, what, really? And I said, I don't know, I'll call him up. So I called him up and he was still interested and he made a really good film. But I'm, you know, there's other books of mine that are in development right now. And the odds are they'll never get made because Hollywood is a sure thing until it isn't. And I've, and that's not a bad thing. Most movies probably shouldn't get made. Making, writing a book is so hard, but it's just me in my basement, and it's still that hard. A movie, you have all these moving parts: actors, directors, producers. It's a miracle that any movie is ever any good, <laughs> because if any one of those things goes bad—and usually more than one goes bad—you know you get some terrible movie, that, like the kind we've all seen and know. So I don't know. Filmmaking, I'm, I, you know, it's it's gratifying when a film turns out well. I mean, I hate to say this, but more people see movies than read books, probably. So. You know, more people probably know Into the Wild from the movie than my book. Oh, I don't know all those poor middle school school kids. are probably uh, So I don't know. I also was paid handsomely by Tom Hanks's company to write a script, a screenplay, paid obscenely handsomely about in a magazine article I wrote about surfers, Mark Fu and Ken Bradshaw. And I realized I don't know how to write fiction. Writing a script, writing fiction, I need the truth to constrain me. You know, otherwise you, ha- you can go anywhere, you know, and that, Unlimited possibility is paralyzing to me. So, I, I, writing a script is really different than writing anything else. It's an art form on its own, and book writers shouldn't necessarily write scripts. A few book writers, like you know, few writers can write films. They can write fiction. They can write nonfiction, but that's rare. And it's a whole different way of thinking. The stuff that you know, writer, we our use of language and the way we, the rhythm of sentences, is how we suck you into reading the next sentence. And that means nothing in a film. It's all about Scripts are all about, you know, sort of just the next scene and the next camera angle and the next just plot. It's a whole different, and it's, it's even probably harder, but it's it's a different different skill. So
0: But it's it's always bothered me that we work in this profession that has the wor- has a negative in front of it. Uh, nonfiction. Yeah. Shouldn't it? I mean, that assumes that lying is the default position of humanity. Uh, <laughs> Shouldn't be the other way around? He's about truth. Um, so we're running out of time. We can get two more questions in if we can kind of make them quick.
1: Uh, Mr. Krakauer, I would like to say that I enjoy reading your books, especially because they're nonfiction. You have an ability to bring out the minor details, especially, for example, the way you explain the climbs so through the Kumba um, ice field. I mean, you can feel, you can feel it when, when you read that book. I grew up in the jungles of South America. And when I read that book, I said, what are you doing? You're glorifying stupidity. Um, So, but now you answered it tonight. And now I can understand it. So thank you very much. All
0: right. Great. Last question of the evening. No pressure, but it has to be brilliant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, My question is related to what he just said. I have this kind of
0: ongoing dialogue with a friend about McCandless, and she sees him
2: as this kind of romanticized, unabashed, independent person who, who she, she sees in a very positive light, while I see him as misguided and, dare I say, selfish. And I know this is kind of like the ongoing debate about him as a figure, and I was wondering if you had any kind of comments or if yeah, you could I, pass I, judgment, I, if you would. I don't see him as romantic nor do I see him as misguided, I see him as tortured. I see him as a tortured soul who found a way to live by breaking away from the world. There's a great quote by one of the people I interviewed about McCandless, who knew him. He said, you know, people like us, this is a guy who was a a river, the guy who was the model for Ed Abbey's, uh, uh, what was his anarchy book? Anyway, he said, you know, people like us, meaning McCandless, we like people, we like to be with them for a little while, but then we gotta get the hell away and then we come back. And that was the way McCandless was and I'm kind of that way. And I get that. He was a, he had a really tortured family. Um, I don't see him as, he did what he had to do. He found a way to live. He died by, he, what he did in the wilderness wasn't, you know, other people have done it, but living in the land where he did was no mean feat. He survived for 113 days. Uh, he died by eating a seed that it was and still is in every edible plant book said to be non-poisonous. Um, so I cut him a lot of slack, uh, especially because when I was his age, I, I was, you know, he was 24 when he died. When I was 23, I went to Alaska by myself and did something really stupid and solo climbed a mountain on an ice cap where, you know, I could have died any number of ways. And I survived out of pure dumb luck and he had, was unlucky. So I, I'm, I'm not ever going to criticize him. I think, you know, I tried to write a nuanced story and let people fill in the blanks and it's interesting, that book, I have no idea this would ha- People project on a McCandless what they want to, uh, and it's fascinating how they project onto him. I can't tell you, though, how many letters I've gotten. I have no idea, that book almost didn't get published. Literally, it was killed, and it was a miracle it was ever published. Uh, one of the most brilliant editors in New York said this is an unpublishable book. Told me that, told my agent that. Um, and, there, and I'm trying to figure out why did it get published, and why has it found such a following? And it, part of it is this mail I get that says, Man, I've always wanted to do something like that and I never have. There's a lot of people out there who would like to have done something like that and didn't. They go to work and they raise their families, but there's a part of them that has that fantasy. And there's something about that. He acted on it. Um, he was, you know, I don't pretend that he had a happy life or, or had a rosy life or, you know, it was, he did what he had to do and he almost pulled it off. Thank you.
0: John Krakauer.